Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza Pressman, and today I am joined by renowned child psychiatrist, Dr. Joshua Sparrow. He's the co-author of all of the Brazelton Touchpoint books, and... He is such a wonderful voice of science and reason. So I wanted to have him on to have a conversation about how to kind of come to terms with being sensitive in the way that we talk about caregiving and how important it is to have connection and also how to set limits in the context of that sensitivity. Because sometimes I find parents really struggle with being able to balance having appropriate expectations, setting limits, having relational boundaries, and feeling like they're still being sensitive to their children. So we're diving into that discussion. And I also just want to ask that you join me with my new premium subscription service. For Apple Podcast users, you just go to Raising Good Humans And you'll see the option to do the premium subscription for $2.99 a month. It's less than a cup of coffee once a month. And it's new content. You can't find it anywhere else. It's bite-sized weekly check-ins about topics that I cover in a way like a masterclass. So it's foundational information on discipline. It will help give you context for every conversation that we have here on Raising Good Humans. I'm so excited to be able to offer it and head there now. And don't forget to write a little review and DM me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast with any questions. Let's just say you're wanting to honor your boundaries, teach children about boundaries, help them understand expectations and limits. And I guess the difference between our inner selves and our dyads or our our groups of people, our collective selves, how do we distinguish between self and other, all of those kinds of things get mashed together as boundaries. And then on the other side of it, I think when we talk about sensitive caregiving, it gets confusing. How can you be sensitive and still have boundaries? And we take for granted that people understand what these words mean or what we intend for them to mean. And so I decided you were the person (laughs) that was going to be able to make sense of all of this in a way that really resonates with parents and caregivers. So I wonder if we should start with 
defining boundaries? I love the really careful way that you think about things and the fact that you're sort of seeing where we're mashing things together that make things confusing. I am not sure I'm the right person, but I'll try. And I'm not sure that my definition is the only one or the right one, but in the interest of trying to make things you know, simpler and clearer, let's decide that we will use that word boundaries to refer to things that happen between people. Limits, Say that again. boundaries only refer to things that happen between people. So when you talk about, for example, how do we give sensitive care while respecting boundaries, actually someone I know recently told me who has a, a brand new baby told me that he he loves to do the nose rubbing thing. And this baby is very young. And and I thought to myself, well, she might love it, but it might be overwhelming to her. Right. I didn't say anything, but I he then went on to say how she reacted. And I thought, hmm, I can't tell from that reaction if the baby was overwhelmed or she loved it. So, you know, the sensitive care and the boundaries has to do with what am I learning about you? What are you learning about me? What are we learning about each other so that we know in this moment, the way you're put together, you love to rub noses or actually that's kind of really not comfortable for you, right? Yes. So we, we could call, you know, that. And the same thing is for physical touching. You know, some people like to be touched. Some people like to touch. If you like to touch, but you're with someone who doesn't like to be touched, then you need to know that about you. Like, I like to do that, but actually I need to know that other people don't and let me learn that about them. Maybe not by experimenting, <laughs> but by observing or maybe asking permission, but noticing I like to do that. Not everybody does. And that would be an example of a boundary between you and me is, you know, how you are with your body and how I, I am with mine. And it, it doesn't mean that there's a right way that touching is good or bad, but that our boundary might be you like touching, I don't, and we'll find that about each other. And then we'll agree that doesn't, that's not comfortable for me. However, I understand your intent is, you know, tenderness and affection. And I appreciate that, right? So I guess I think about that as boundaries. And I I do. One of the ways that I've been worried about the word being misused is um, misunderstanding it as putting up walls between people that actually get in the way of relationships and finding one's way to sort of what the right closeness and distance is. I remember when I was in medical school, which was a while ago, I had a resident who you know, was early on in her career. And I remember her making a comment about a patient's boundaries that I thought was actually really just a distancing on the part of this young doctor. And I thought, this is a teenager who was suffering, and I forget what she was doing, but it was not, you know, grossly <laughs> out of line. And I just felt like the, the doctor was saying boundary, but it was more about she she was putting up a wall because she couldn't handle it. So some of, some of what, if you think about boundaries as being what happens between you and me, it's more learning about what's going on with me, what's going on with you, and sort of what's a good distance or closeness in what way and how do we connect in ways that work for both of us. And it's partly my temperament and your temperament. It's partly your story and history and my story and my history. And it's partly um, what's happening in the moment, right? So if someone's been touched in ways that were violations, they're likely to be uncomfortable with or to have feelings about. And so, and they may not want to tell you that, but it may be something that ends up being a part of what you wonder about or think about as a possibility if you feel like their boundary is not touching. Whereas yeah. limits, I think, are 
what you can and can't do. And they're often more about activities or objects. Like you can't, you can't throw that ball, but they can be interpersonal, can be, you know, I will not accept you raising your voice to me as your father. So that's a limit. I, I guess the other difference is the limit is maybe about a specific behavior that is a transgression of a rule or an agreement or a convention, whereas a boundary is figuring out the space between you and me. One other thing about boundaries that I'll say is, you know, in some of the different family therapy models, there's this idea of boundaries within families. And one I think that's really helpful is the intergenerational boundaries. So there, there, there's the parent generation and the child generation. And there are some things that really only should happen between the parents and that children should not be brought into. So can you get more specific? Because I think we know what you're talking about, but let's like get real specific. I will give an example. Yeah. So, you know, if you just had a fight with your parenting partner and you're really mad and having trouble containing yourself, it might be tempting to draw your child into it and say, you know, did you ever notice this about your mother <laughs> or <laughs> does that bother you too? Like that is, that is a transgression of the intergenerational boundaries. Like you need to yeah. keep that to yourself, work it out with your parent partner and don't bring the, the child into it. Another is on setting limits with the child. If you disagree with each other, you then draw the child into your parent generation when they need to sort of stay in theirs and have you grownups figure it out. That's a really big one that taps into under like you can be sensitive and hold boundaries in that way. And we'll let's get into that more specifically because I think that's the biggest struggle. But I want you to keep on this track first that I interrupted. Well, well, no, you didn't. Was that then maybe that was the track you tell me? But what I was these in, these intergenerational boundaries that there are things that parents need to kind of hold for themselves and not invite the child to cross over into. And similarly, you know, although as adults, it's, I personally think it's kind of great to have a whole playful side and to express it, but it doesn't mean that you relinquish your parental responsibilities or authorities. So you can get on the floor and play and laugh and have fun and fool around, but the child still needs to know, you know what your job is and, you know, if there's danger or someone's going to get hurt or there's something that's scary that you're going to sort of move back into your parent role and say, we're not going to let that happen. But it, but if you come down to the floor to be childlike with your child and then you're no longer responsible for making sure we're all OK, then you put the child in position of either not having a parent or having to become the parent. But the big one is really when two parents disagree on the disciplinary action. So you know, if you were to set a limit on your child, like you're grounded for the rest of your life. Let's just say you said that to your child, okay? It's not a good idea, but let's just say in a moment you said that and your parenting partner said, you know, while the child was there, well, that's never gonna happen. How are you gonna enforce that? Or like, I totally disagree with you. That's way, you know, that's punishment that's way beyond, you know, that that, then the child's caught in the middle. You've then sort of brought the child Mm -hmm. into your disagreement. So instead, you would want to you would want to not say anything as the other parent, and then try to you know get privately with them to say, let's talk about that together. You think that's going to work? Is there a way we could go back and revise that? I'm not going to do that without you because they need to know we we're together on these things. Yeah, 
I think that that happens so often. And then you get into good cop, bad cop instead of we're going to go together and then we're going to come back and figure out a way to have repaired that mistake without it being like a kid is observing the process of the adults (laughs) arguing about what a stupid thing that was to say. Yeah. And you don't have to hide that there is a process. I mean, you know, you, you can. Kids are smart. They know what's going on. But they it's hard for them to be brought into the into the process. So they could know, you know, we're going to work out what we think we should do together about this. And then but, we'll then but then the child's not in that conversation with that's going to be. Right. It's not. OK, let's the, the, the group of us discuss how we're going to work through this the two parents can acknowledge, you know what, we're going to figure this out and we'll get back to you. Exactly. Yeah. Because if the child's sort of in that conversation, you are then taking down the intergenerational boundary, which is confusing and can be kind of scary. And it's also really just practically hard to work out your differences with your parenting partner with a child there. Because there is like, well, who's the best parent or the nicest parent or the one that the child loves the most? You don't, you don't want to be there. <laughs> and now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors. It's so hard to find good gifts for certain family members, especially parents and grandparents who seem to have everything. Well, Skylight is the perfect gift. In fact, we just got this for my grandfather, my children's great grandfather. Our whole family came together and got him Skylight frames as a gift and everybody put their pictures on so that he can constantly have reminders of all of the happy pictures. You never have to print them. You just text them. So it's easy to set up, easy to use. So when a family member is far away and there is this frame where the whole family can email photos all the time and the frame just keeps rotating and sits in a beautiful place that brings so much joy, you have found a fabulous gift. I can tell you that Skylight is the perfect gift. And now as a special offer, you can get $15 off your purchase of Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's right. To get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter the code HUMANS. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com promo code HUMANS. It's such a great solution for a beautiful gift for anybody who's far away who just wants to see a whole lot of you. I'm a mom and I know that the health and well-being of your loved ones is your top priority because it is mine. So it's important to stay informed about anything and everything that affects our families, including how to stay safe, And one of the ways that we can stay safe is by getting vaccinated. And with COVID-19 vaccines and boosters, you can help keep your kids in school and keep your family healthier by just going and getting it. (laughs) And in fact, the updated COVID-19 booster is now available and can help strengthen our protection against the original coronavirus and also targeting the newer, more infectious strains. Californians ages 12 and over can now get their updated booster and children as young as five are eligible to receive their original booster. Help the whole family get vaccinated. Head to myturn.com 
ca.gov for more information about COVID-19 vaccines and boosters for the entire family. There you will find the resources and information you need, including options to book a vaccine appointment or to find a walk-in location near you. Protect your family. Visit myturn.ca.gov today for more information. We really want to reduce the severity of infection, and there's overwhelming evidence that shows we can. What have you observed or what do you notice about this idea of having a difficult time being sensitive and having boundaries? Tell me what the difficult time is. So what I'm noticing is people are embracing the idea of being sensitive to your child's needs, being present and aware of what's going on for their unique temperaments and how they're moving through the world and naming their emotions, all of that. But then when their child says what their emotions are or their experiences and that it's difficult or painful or scary or whatever whatever challenging emotion comes about, parents get to get frozen because they feel like, well, my I, I'm being sensitive to my child. And what I'm noticing is that they're struggling. And so in order to be sensitive to them, I have to alleviate that struggle and that feeling. And so I have to shift my boundaries. But if I keep my boundaries, then it's going to keep my child upset. And then I feel like I'm scarring them, shaming them, fill in the blank. That's what I see as the major Mm -hmm. confusion for parents when they're thinking about all. And let's just say that these are in the popular culture parenting world. They're called all sorts of things sensitive caregiving, mindful parenting, conscious parenting, gentle parenting. <laughs> like, But mm. really what I think gets lost in all of that is how to understand the importance that boundaries and limits, which are two separate things that I think you really named the distinction between quite well, but incorporating that into sensitivity seems to get everybody not everybody, but seems to make a lot of parents confused in the heat of the moment. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's so important. And I, I, I'm not sure that the, the idea of boundaries helps there. There are a couple of sort of other things that might actually be less confusing. Great. Um, Go it, go for it. And, and one is leaving the child room and opportunities to work on some of the struggles herself, himself. And you could call that a a boundary thing, like don't step into what they need to work on if you want. But that's not as clear as just saying in, in, in each of these moments, how much of what's going on right now do I need to fix or respond to or soften or fill in or move forward? And and where can I leave some room for my child to maybe reach towards being able to handle a little bit more frustration or handle a little bit more disappointment or work on getting their big feelings back under control or and so it's it's a it's a balance and so boundaries doesn't quite do it for me because it it, it sounds a little bit more fixed whereas the sensitivity isn't in. I have to move in and fill that gap or fix that problem or make everything all better. 
Instead, the sensitivity is in, you know, trying to figure out what do I have to add or supplement me as the grown up, you know, totally regulated myself, of course, all the time, which is how it works, right? (laughs) And where is this an opportunity for the child to maybe have to reach a little bit and have a little bit of a hard time? So that's sort of, you know, maybe rethinking what sensitivity is, how it works and and why it's important. And, Mm -hmm. And I actually, this is pure speculation on my part, but I think that some small part of the epidemic of child anxiety, maybe because we're doing too much and fixing too much. And, you know, if we move in there to make things better right away, we're kind of saying, well, you don't know how to do that. And you're dependent on me to do it. And it's actually a really big, terrible thing that I better fix right away because it's such a scary big thing. Whereas if we say, I think you can do it. I'm here. I'll help, you know, when and how you need it. But I also think you can work on this. It's like, it's not going to kill you. We're all going to be okay. And this is a place where you you can grow and, and you'll be able to do it. And, and But I'm not abandoning you and I am being sensitive. And so the second part is pressure on parents yes. to be perfect. Yes. And to make everything all better and to have the happiest kid on the block. Bad idea. I think happiness is really overrated. overrated. If we're lucky. I mean, no, but, you know, life is, I mean, we'll, we'll all get sick. We'll all have pain and we're all going to die. You know, and we will have joy and pleasure and satisfaction and warmth, but it's all of that. So, you know, I I, personally, I think part of, you know, being with other people, including our children, is like helping them get to this place where, yeah, life is all of those things. It's this wonderful, mysterious, temporary condition that we, you know, we want to be able to enjoy as much as we can. But if we're deluded into thinking that there won't be sad, bad, hard things that happen, you know, we'll blame ourselves or blame life or whatever, instead of being able to say, well, no, we're, we're going to be ready to be in, in life the way it is. So if parents can sort of let go of the pressure on themselves to be perfect, to have their kids have, you know, be happy all the time, never experience distress or so that's the other part of this. And again, you know, I think that pressure has been put on parents. And again, I think there's some strand, this is speculation again, of the epidemic of child depression and child anxiety is because parents have been pressured to try to have their kids. It's a lot of pressure on kids too. In order for me to make you feel like you're a good parent, I have to be happy all the time. Good luck with that. Totally. (laughs) Like the pressure of feeling like you're supposed to be in any, your internal life is supposed to be any particular way can be incredibly intense when, and, and the idea, I, I think what's important well, everything that you just said was really beautiful. But what I what is what feels more in our control as parents is the part of it that is in being able to let go a bit from the fixing of the feelings. You're not just helping your child stretch themselves, but you're also giving them a deep belief that whatever their feelings are, they're not scary because they're part of being a person. If we jump right in to fix the feeling, there's some message there that's not only, I don't think you're going to be capable of this without me, but also, wait a second, you shouldn't be feeling that way. Let's make sure yeah, this goes get rid of that. But on yeah. the other side of it, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. <clears throat> on the other I side. I feel like you were going to say something important. <laughs> 
You know, I'll remember. I don't know if it's important or not, but I'll remember. <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say that on the other side of that, helping us understand the space between you've got this, you can do this, and then a parent feels like, wait, now I'm not being sensitive to my child. I think that's the cycle that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends on the age of the child and the temperament of the child and sort of where you are when it's happening. And, you know, the easy part of those sort of obvious signals that the child really needs you to move in and provide the supports. And with, with you know, infants and childs and younger children, it's really clear that they've kind of checked out, like there's no one home right now. And you need to just grab them, hold them and hug them and soothe them and talk to them sweetly. And, and, and you can hear in the rhythm of their whimper as it starts to slow down and get quieter and their breathing slows down. I mean, and their body relaxes. So, you know, I, I think people figure out by that, that kind of physical expression of the distress. And, you know, with older kids, you know, I think you can tell, not all the time, you're not always going to get right, but by kind of how out there what they say or what they do is. If, you know, they're screaming really loud and that's not something that usually happens in your family, if it happens in your family all the time, then maybe it doesn't tell you that. But if that's if that's unusual for them and unusual in your family and they're saying like really, you know, horrible, horrible things, you know, they're not able to control what's going on inside of them right then. But bigger kids in that moment are probably not going to respond to you holding them. They might. It depends on your child. So you can't really, you know, say, you know, anything in particular about that. And they may also need some space. They may actually need you to, to say you know, you need to you need to, for you to figure out is my presence reassuring, or, or is it? Yeah, yeah. So, and you and you're not going to get it right, and you may have to experiment. You might, you know, you might try saying, you know, and I'm thinking about an old, like an eight year old. I might say, you know, I I can stay here with you until you know you're feeling better. And if they say no, get out of here. Then you say, okay, if that's going to work better for you, I'll give you some space, and you know, I'll check in later. Um, yeah, you know, I, where to you know find I'll me. be here. Yeah. So I think, again, not to, to know we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to get it right all the time. And it's partly sort of a trial by error testing out. Do they need this or do they need that? Do they need more of this or less of that? But you're using it's often their nonverbal behavior as well as like how sort of out of proportion their reaction is to know whether or not they're going to need you as the external support to bring them back in. And the other thing is with with, you know, even with fairly young children, they're in between, they're doing it on their own and they're needing you is you're reminding them of what they do that works for them or giving them the tools that they have. So it might be their blanket or their stuffed animal or the quiet place that they go to. Or re- so, so that's, you know, you are supplementing, but you're not doing it for them. The other thing I was going to say about where I, th- I think we've made things unnecessarily hard because of the pressure on parents is this idea that we always will be sort of within the mindful place or within the gentle place. The other day I was driving down the road and um, these kids were walking along the sidewalk and the ball went into the middle of the street. So of course I braked right away and the, the kid very wisely like started to turn off the ball and then looked and saw, well, that's not a good idea. But if, and that kid was old enough to do that. But if it were a younger child and the parent were there, if the parents screamed and totally lost it, that would be okay. You would understand why. 
Well, and and I think the child then the child would get whoa, this is really a big deal because it is. Yeah, right. It's it's <laughs> so, life saving. Yeah, and 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 so whereas if you stayed sort of like, well, we're going to have to talk about this when we get home. It's like <laughs> I, I I think it actually would be a bigger problem because in the moment the message is you could have gotten killed. And that would be the worst thing in the world for all of us. And I am really, really upset. I'm not mindful or gentle. I'm really yes. upset. Wait, yeah. Josh, I actually, that is not, that is a perfect example of times when, you know, someone just called me and said, my three-year-old keeps running away from me walking down the street in New York. And I, you know, I, I, I snapped at him and I'm worried that now he's scared of me because I wasn't being mindful. And I was like, no, no, no. That's a very good reason for you to snap because it is scary and it's serious and it's life or death. It's not like a process that you're learning. Like there's no second chance on that one. And I think that, that that's such an important example of the parenting conundrum of like wanting to get it so perfectly that you're like scared to actually have a human important stress response to save a child because you're worried that it's going to mess with them. And now that's, to me, what what's happened. And I was going to say, if this parent says, I snapped at my child when she ran away from me on a street in New York, and I'm worried that I've damaged her or she's afraid of me or something, what worries me about that is if the parent thinks that she might make herself scary for the child because she's now approaching the child with, I did something bad and wrong that hurt you. Of course, I'm going to lose it if you like run down the street. Like, right. this is a street, you're a three, you can't do that. And I'm not going to let anything happen to you, but you need to like do your part, like hold my hand and don't run off. If the parent stands there, it's like, I'm not, there's no risk that I'm scary that she's mad at me because I understand that I didn't do anything wrong or bad. I, you know, I, the, I did what I needed to do. I'm not scared of me or guilty of me because I did that. So I think parents have to be able to stand in that place for the child to not be, because the parents comes out of that feeling like, oh my God, was it the right thing to do? Should I have done that or not? Then, you know, mm -hmm. the child's going to pick up on mm, me. She's like, there's something really off about her. Why would you do that? And and I also like, I, I don't know how children can learn about the full range of their own emotions and other people's emotions if we're, you know, constrained to not feel like that would be absolutely the the way, you know, that's why we have feelings, right? Yes. And that's they're why that's why that. we express feelings in this way. They're they keep us alive and they keep, you know, those of us that we love alive and children need to um, be exposed to that fuller range to understand them. And, you know, if she was like, you know, if she was upset because it was a big reaction, well, then you stand in that place of, yeah, I had to do that. And then we can talk about why God's upset. You know, this is a big street and their car is going on and we have to hold hands so that nothing happens to you. And, and when we don't, when that doesn't happen, like, of course, I'm going to get really upset. And that's what my voice sounds like. And that's why my hair stands on end. So you can do that, right? But, yeah, but that's, that's where the, the learning is. Yeah. That's also yeah. different than saying, you know, I'm sorry I raised my voice. There's no reason for me to do that. I should have gotten composure and taken a deep breath. Like, no, that's actually a very good reason to raise your voice and to get mm. your you and to panic a little bit and to make sure that you do the the fastest thing to protect your child but this child better hold your hand most of the time and not be doing this a whole lot every day if you're walking down the street in New York right 
And now a quick break from my sponsor. It's time to ditch the chemicals with Caraway Homes' non-toxic cookware and bakeware collections so you can make healthier cooking a piece of cake. Caraway Homes' non-toxic kitchenwares are all designed for the modern home and feature a chemical-free ceramic coating so food can be prepared with peace of mind that no hard-to-pronounce compound will leach into your healthy ingredients. And all the sets come equipped with easy-access storage solutions so that there's no stacking required, no more days of misplacing your lids, and only once a year, Caraway's Cyber Season event is here. So save up to 20% on all Caraway products, including their internet-famous non-toxic cookware set. And for the first time ever, you can now save on Caraway's food storage, tea kettle, and mini cookware set. This exclusive deal won't last long, so make sure to shop your favorite colors and products while you still can. I love Caraway because I want non-stickware, but I want that naturally slick surface so that there is a healthier slide-off-the-pan eggs and easy cleaning situation, but without all of those toxic materials that are in so many non-stick products. Visit Caraway Home. to take advantage of their cyber season event and score up to 20% off your next purchase of all non-toxic kitchenware. This deal won't last long, so visit carawayhome.com to shop all their incredible products for up to 20% off this holiday season. Caraway. So let's go to stress response because I think that's another one of those things where, you know, people might hear research about cortisol levels spiking and how that could be harmful for kids. So that was a great example of that. The harm is in chronic stress response where it's lasting and it's persistent and it's not coming back down. These small events have stress responses that are actually quite beneficial and there for a reason. So I would love for you to go deeper in that and kind of explain the different kinds of stress responses and the difference between what's harmful and what's actually something we need to normalize and not be so afraid of. Well, with our example of the mother walking on the street in New York with a three-year-old who runs away and the mother gets upset, and if she could sort of be clear, well, that's what mothers do when three-year-olds run away, and I will do that when you do that, and you may feel upset, I actually would think that would be really reassuring to the child and contribute to a lower baseline level of stress. Because like, oh, I get what mothers are here for. They keep me safe. Because that, you know, that's the central question. That's the central question for babies and young children is, is there someone who will take care of me, who will make sure that I'm okay, that I will be fed, that I will be safe, that I, you know, that I can, you know, live and grow. That's what they're trying to figure out. And their stress goes up when they don't know. And that, and, and that's, that's the chronic situation that there isn't really anybody there who looks like to the child, like I can be sure this person will protect me and make sure that I have what I need to survive. That That's where, you know, in one form or another, that's what chronic stress for children ends up looking like to them. So there's a huge difference between that and these intermittent things that upset us. And our, you know, we wouldn't have stress responses if they weren't there for a reason that had some benefit. It's really about balance. You know, I think sometimes in our ways of thinking things are either all good or all bad, but it's really about the balance. And we we have stress responses that are important for us because they help us 
we recognize when there is danger, respond quickly, mobilize the physical resources we need to be able to respond effectively. And, and our stress hormones do that for us. And that's why they're there. And if we never had those experiences, well, then maybe we wouldn't. We'd lose the ability to mobilize our resources. And there, you know, there literally are things like cortisol will tell your body, you know, you need to release more glucose from your liver so that you can metabolize more quickly and you need to get your blood pressure and your pulse up because you're gonna have to run or think you know. Yeah. So I mean it's all it's all there for a reason. And you don't want to be in that state, you know, eight hours a day, you know, five days a week, right? And if your job is like that, um, you may want to retire early. But um <laughs> But that could happen, you know, every now and then throughout the week for a relatively short period of time because you get the stress and then you figure out how to get safe and then you resolve it and then you settle yourself. And, you know, in, in terms of the impact on the brain, a lot of the studies have looked at children with very severe, very chronic stress, you know, children in orphanages with care that wasn't sensitive and that wasn't in relationship. That, I mean, a lot of the research on where there's, you know, visible harm to the brain and, you know, impact on cognitive function is, is very, very severe, very, very chronic. And I, I really worry that this is another way in which unnecessary pressure has been on parents that then ends up backfiring. Because again, if you think about how do children end up feeling like I can take care of myself and I'll be okay. And, you know, the world's got some challenges in it, but, you know, I'll figure out how to find my way through. And I will get anxious sometimes, but I'm not going to always be anxious about everything. How do they get there if they don't have periodic experiences of that was hard, that was stressful, my heart rate just went up and that was scary and we can take a deep breath and we'll be okay now. If they don't ever have those experiences, the world has got to be an even scarier place. One of the most harmful things of misinterpreting science I think that's happened for parents is that specifically thinking about those Romanian orphanages and the studies of cr the chronic neglect getting translated somehow into a distressed, upset child who's loved and well cared for is somehow in the two hours they were uncomfortable going to have brain damage from the lack of sensitivity and, or, you know, because they're having intermittent stress that that is in a overall loving household, that that somehow could be even in the same map of a conversation as children studied in orphanages who didn't thrive. Like it's so harmful for parents. So I'm really glad that you addressed that. This is not to say that there's not a space between those two things, but I I think it's important to hear. I think it's really important to hear more of that and less of the harm that we might be imposing on our children by allowing them to experience uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. It's, I'm thinking it's sort of like the difference between exercise that makes us stronger you know, when, when you exercise, you actually do get your heart rate up, you do get your blood pressure up. And right. if you're doing, you know, muscle strength training, weightlifting, you're actually having like little micro tears in little, you know, muscle cells. And then it builds back stronger. You, you know, when you get your pulse and heartbeat up to a certain level, your, your, your cardiovascular system gets stronger as opposed to like a car crash. <laughs> right. Right. It's a whole other thing. 
so how 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 do we let our children have experiences where they get to kind of develop their stress tolerance muscles or their anxiety tolerance muscles or their distress you know sadness tolerance muscles so that not so that they don't experience those anymore but so that they can handle them and also that so that they know that they can i mean that really when i look at children uh, adolescents in high school or going off to college who you know are struggling with anxiety and depression i don't want to blame it all on this i think that there's just no you know grounds for that but i do wonder how much of it is because parents have been pushed to be perfect and do all of these things for that have not left room for kids to um be able to develop those muscles for themselves. And again, that's speculation on my part, but I, I do I do worry about them. Well, the good part of that, I think the positive part of that speculation is that it gives some locus of control to us to be able to better support our kids in th- those moments by giving space and allowing them to exercise those mini, those micro tears and those muscles. And I if you can view it as a positive, there's very little we have control over in life. So if we can cling to that, like, let's say there's some of it's genetics, some of it's the environment outside of the home, some of it's a host of factors. But if there's a percentage of it that can be supported by us, that's the positive side. The negative side, of course, is like, oh, I'm contributing to this. But on the positive side, I don't have to contribute to this is a wonderful feeling of Okay, there's something I can do, even if it's doing less. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think it's really important to be clear that it isn't about withdrawing or pulling out of the relationship and leaving it all up to them or thinking we're yeah. less important. I think part of what gives children the feeling that they can work on handling stress or anxiety or fear or big feelings is knowing that their parents are there, are researchers, they can turn to them. And one, uh, I think another huge problem that, you know, so-called science has contributed for parents is this idea that adolescence is all about separation. I don't think it's about separation. I think it's about a reconfiguration of the closeness and distance. But yeah. they really need to know that you're there. It's not I have to get out of the way and leave them all kinds of space. We have to sort of, you know, we have to be clear we are there, we will always be there, we will always care, but we're sort of readjusting the distance closeness when, how, so that there is space within the relationship that holds them to work on some of these things. My very scientific way of looking at that is that we go from being dogs to being cats. (laughs) Like we're there, (laughs) but now we're a little bit less on top of them, but we're at the edge of the couch or in the other room, like, we don't really, like, we're not wagging our tails all the time. This is my very, but what do you think of that science? I think that's hysterically funny. But, you know, there are all kinds, there are all kinds of dogs and, well, cats especially. There are some cats, like, who just, you know, will come right up to you and rub against your legs and they won't. So. They won't go away? Um, okay, I, that's not the cat that I, the, those aren't the cats. That, I, I love that, though. That's so, that's so great. Yeah. But they they do. I say this all the time. Like if I were an animal, I'd be a dog and you'd see my tail wagging and there would be no like playing it cool. And so I have to just remind myself like I could be a cat today and I'll just sit over here. I'm available to be pet, but I'm not going to (laughs) like 
be in your face as much. Yeah, there are certain and we, things. And, and we will be, we'll be on top of that and we'll be watching that. We're not going to be playing around with that or being at a distance from that. Yeah, but I like the idea of the reconfiguration because it's true. It's really actually quite a beautiful time. It's been touted as so fraught and terrible. And then it's actually just a reconfiguration. And I think we probably enter into it a little bracing our, you know, bracing ourselves when it might benefit all of us and teenager. I'm sure it doesn't feel great to be an adolescent who's feeling like they're supposed to be not needing you anymore. Yeah, I think I think that whole idea of separation has done a lot of harm because I think parents are like, well, I have to get it out of the way. I have to let them do all this stuff. And I think kids feel abandoned and scared. You actually said this once. I'm pretty sure you said kind of the early years, the zero to three, but maybe it was because we were talking about like being available to give rides for going out. I don't know. Well, and to, you know, so they know that you're awake when they get home so that they don't come home at three. And that if they do come home, having used some kind of alcohol. Yeah, actually, I'm really glad you said that. Will you give an example of now a reconfigured boundary in an adolescent relationship? I, I was actually thinking about pregnancy. And, you know, I mean, the baby is inside of you if you're a pregnant person, right? Uh-huh. And when the baby's born, the baby's attached to you with the umbilical cord. I mean, that's like a different kind of connection boundary than when the mm-hmm. umbilical cord is cut. And then still, you know, people talk about the fourth trimester, those first months, or, you know, if you're breastfeeding. And then you think about at nine months when babies can pick up food by themselves and they want to feed themselves. And then if you're, you've been breastfeeding or bodily, like, you know, suddenly they're saying, I can do this now. I don't want you shoving stuff in my mouth, or at least sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, right? So so there are all these reconfigurations from very early on. And that one is another example of looking at what's the child ready for and where do I have to move in? So with adolescence, you know, this is not a dramatic example, but things like homework, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, it really depends on the child. But if a child is let's say a child has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder mm-hmm. and they're, they're not going to get their homework done because they forgot to bring it home or they did shove it somewhere in their bag, but like they have no idea where it was and they're actually not paying attention to that anymore, right? Or they do take it out of their bag because they did bring it home, but then they get distracted again or they did the first problem that was easy, but the second was really hard. And so it's hard for kids with ADHD like to stay in there when it gets hard. Yeah. So there's a different kind of being in there to provide supports than for a child who doesn't have that. You know, also, if you know, let's say in the first year of high school, when the child's first getting used to every class is a different teacher and there are midterms and there are finals, it's a whole other kind of set of relationships and organizational skills that you know, different kids will need different amounts of help for different amounts of time. But there then will hopefully a time where they feel like, oh, I know there will be midterms. I'm, I know how to get myself ready for that. I know there will be finals. I'm not going to leave the last minute. That may not happen in ninth grade. It may not get all good in 10th grade. But so you're pulling back on the kinds of supports that you're you're giving. But I mean, I think the way our schools are set up, 
kids actually do need us to sort of help with things that are not reasonable to expect them to know how to do. Like, how do you plan out your time, you know, the week before finals? So, you know, like how much to spend on what, especially when the thing you need to spend the most time on is the subject that you are like the least. hate the most. Or, right, right, right. right. So, so those are things where you can, I think parents can support kids and say, well, let's look at your schedule and what you can do. And I've actually, ha- I've seen one child who needed a lot of help with that at the beginning of the year. And at the end of the year, her friends were all freaked out about the final coming. This might've been like 10th grade or something. And she said, oh, let me show you how we do the schedule. <laughs> and, you know, here's the chunks of times and here's how we do that. And she, she had sort of mastered it, figured it out, felt good about it, was not scared anymore, felt like she could handle it. And she was teaching her friends. So so for different kids, it will look the way, but, but you can see how, well, then a parent could sort of move back and say, I think you've got this now. Yeah. And what a sense of mastery for the child when she gets there. And part of the sense of mastery is she knows that you recognize that and you step back. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.